Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hello, welcome to FYI, the For Your Innovation podcast from Arc Invest. Today we have two special guests in the room. I have, of course, Kathy Wood, CEO and CIO of Arc Invest, and I have a special guest, Kathy's mentor, former professor, Dr. Art Laffer. Uh, you will know. Dr. Art Laffer from the famous Laffer Curve, and he served as an advisor on President Reagan's Economic Council. Welcome, everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, you guys go a long way back, and Dr. Laffer, you're one of the first advisors to ARC and one of the first to see the vision. When did Kathy approach you, and how did you learn about the firm, and what was your first impression? Well, I knew Kathy was going to do something when she was an undergraduate and burst into my graduate program. I'd never had an undergraduate student, and all of a sudden, this highly energetic, highly intelligent, young undergraduate student came into my office and, you know, then took classes. It was wonderful. So I knew right then that must have been... 45 years ago or so. And I knew right then that she was something really special. And I've been working with Kathy ever since. And wherever she was, whether it was Tupelo or whether it was Alliance Bernstein or wherever, I had followed Kathy and followed her work. And when she started ARC, I knew this was going to be a big deal because Kathy is the most serious, hardworking, in detail person I've met in my life, really honestly. Kathy, any comments? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, it was 1976. Okay, at USC. And I met Art through a friend. We used to have dinner. And then we would be talking over dinner. And I just loved, 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 loved what he was talking about. And just wanted to, to learn more. He said, why don't you come to my class? And I said, well, I'm an undergraduate. You're in the graduate school. And he said, and he said so what? So there I was. Yes. Okay. About the firm, Kathy, when did you introduce ARC, when the firm ARC Invest started, and what was, his what was his reaction? So I decided to start ARC really in August of 2012, but I didn't quite know it at that time. That's when I evolved our uh, research ecosystem. But in 2013, I was ready to do it, and I went to Tennessee to talk to Art. Art he, he's been an advisor to me, a mentor all my life. It was very important to me that he buy into this and think it's a good idea. I told him, I want to focus only on innovation as the rest of the world goes passive. I feel like this is a huge hole out there. There's not enough research being done. And there's so much exciting innovation taking place that I felt it was my calling. And Art got it right away. He started teaching me about DNA sequencing and biology and math and physics. And, you know, I had no idea because I knew him as my mentor in economics. Anytime there was a crisis in the economy, I'd be calling art. I never had any idea that his breadth of knowledge extended as far as it does. And so 
it was even more important. It was, yes, I have to do this. When I walked back or when I flew back, I said, I'm definitely doing this. All the stars were aligned for Kathy. They really were. She had developed the biggest fund, I think, at uh, Alliance Bernstein. You had this thing. She had achieved her goal there. She had become the biggest money manager. And she now had this model, this way of looking at the world, this energy, and she needed a new challenge and she sure got it. And she did it in the right area. And it's just astounding. So many people think they're into technology, but they're superficial. The one thing Kathy is not as superficial. She really gets the team together and goes way in and digs deep, deep, deep. When Kathy says something, you know that there's no one who's going to say, wait, you missed this. She doesn't miss this. Well, that's because I am surrounded by an amazing research team. James Wang here is one of our analysts focused on artificial intelligence, deep learning, and, you know. And she, she got the team together. Just, I just thought I'd mention that, <laughs> Kathy. You developed the team, and the team is wonderful. Your team is first class. Yeah. You know, you know, when I joined the firm, the, the brand just instantly communicated the level of ambition. So I think when you, when you build the right firm, it, it really just uh, it attracts the right people in, in, by itself, and, and it, the firm starts to build by itself. I'm just going to jog there one bit. James came to us because, oh, really? because he heard, was it with Art? It was uh, Carol Masser, Bloomberg Radio. I did one uh, in 2014 with Art and one by myself. I don't know which one. It was the one about Illumina. Uh, Illumina. Okay. Okay. Yes. So, Dr. Laffer, I'd love you to take us back into the 80s, to the heart of the Reagan administration. I think there's a lot of, even t among young people today, there's almost a lot of nostalgia for the 80s and that era where there was a lot of hope and optimism and the future seemed more unbounded. I think things like the show Stranger Things on Netflix being wildly popular by being a callback to the 80s is, is a very interesting cultural phenomenon. So what was it like back then? What was technology viewed as back then? Today, it's just almost the only thing we talk about. And is it kind of, is the future that we built what you guys anticipated? Well, there, the, the nostalgia always creates an image of the past that isn't true. I mean, at the time in the 80s, it was just like now. I mean, it was just now that you've, it was so wildly successful. Now you've forgotten all the bad parts. You've gotten all the good parts. And nostalgia is a lovely, warm, fuzzy creator of a good period. It was great. It turned out to be very nice. You know, we had the tax cuts. We had economic growth. We had prosperity. We had innovation. We had all the wonderful creative things. I mean, I just was watching this 80s, and I think it was the first quarter of 1984. U.S. real GDP grew at 8.8% annualized rate. Not only that, I think in one month we had 700,000 jobs created. I mean, you know, big numbers. And it's just amazing going back to that time. Tax cuts, sound money, free trade, minimal regulations, you know, it really works. What was the technology perspective from the 80s? What, like today, you know, maybe in the 2000s, the internet was the, was the next big thing and happening. What was the thing back then? Well, let me that just tell you what it was back then. I have the technology of the 80s right with me. <laughs> I have a flip phone. <laughs> and uh, so I don't think I, it flipped in the 80s. Maybe the big brick in the 80s? You know, it was a big brick. Yeah. I had a big brick in the 80s. That's exactly correct. You go back there, I've got the Hewlett Packard first uh, computer there, which I did. Uh, and the Wang, I don't know if you remember the Wang computer. My last you name, know, but I never of, used it. I, well, <laughs> all of those were hugely technological innovation. I had a Frieden and a Marchand calculator. And then we got the Wang, we got the HP. Those things just took place. You had to have a little adding machine because you had to get paper to get your numbers to recall the numbers. 
numbers there. So when you're doing the machines, you do all the multiplication, you store the number over here. Then, and, you know, that was big technology back then. We used to have a, a rolling thing for duplicating. It smelled that thing they did, the classroom stuff. Uh, you, you had to, if you wanted to fax a paper overseas, it was like $80 per paper. You know, it's just amazing technologies developed in there. And I know today everyone thinks everything is technology and we never had any back then. We were driving ox carts and around, but we had a huge technology boom back then. And if you go back further, we've always had technology booms. And the one now is just really exciting. Okay. Was the attitude to technology very different? Today, it's, it's like the only part of the economy we, we almost care to focus about. Back then, was there a sense that this computer thing was going to snowball into something of a different character altogether? At Stanford, and this was 1963-64, I had a job as a night watchman in Shockley Transistor on Page Mill Road, 1801 Page wow, you're Mill you're at Shockley. I was at wow. Shockley. I talked to Shockley probably once a week for an, half an hour, an hour. I was the night watchman there because I could do all my homework there with that. We got these. He was trying to do the silicon chip at the time. And it was just amazing. I mean, you know, that was big stuff. You know, you look at it now, maybe as primitive technology, but boy, I'll tell you, it wasn't primitive back then. We took off. We had all the people there, all of them at Shockley Transistor who left and founded Texas Instrument, I think it was. And, you know, all those guys. Technology is not new, but it's a different form today, and it's really exciting today. So I think no discussion would be incomplete, of course, without talking about the famous Laffer curve. Kathy, maybe you can just give a brief overview of a what the concept is and, and Dr. Laffer you can get into about, you know, how did it affect the economic policy at the time and what were the primary learnings? Well, the Laffer curve is famous because Art drew it on a napkin. Who was it? Who were you with? Was it? Uh, Dick Cheney and Don Rumsfeld. So they say, and Jude Winiski, of course. Jude Winiski, right. Who was the editor of the... He was one of the editorial writers of the Wall Street Journal. For the Journal. Wall Street Journal, yeah. right. So the Laffer curve, basically the idea is, you know, you can increase taxes and increase revenue up to a point, but once you take tax rates too high, you're going to start losing revenue as people defect. You know, they stop working, they move to other countries, what have you. It's just like price of a product. You can overprice your product and lose money. You can underprice your product and lose money. There's a correct price for a product which is where you make money on it. And, you know, the same thing is true with taxes in a simplified fashion. If you tax people at 100%, how much are you going to work if every time you go to the office and you receive a bill, not a check? Not much. You know, how much are you going to pay in taxes? Zero. Now, at zero tax rates, you're also going to pay zero. Now, as you look between those two points, there are different tax rates, have different revenue implications, different output implications. And, you know, it's fairly simple, except that had been forgotten by accountants. If you ever go into a company and they ask you what happens to price if we raise the price, what they all do look is look at the same quantity with a higher price. The raising price always raises revenues to an accountant. Lowering price always lowers revenue to accountant. Well, government had become an accountant and had forgotten the economics. Throughout the 60s, starting with the Kennedy administration all the way to the Reagan administration, the U.S. cut its tax rates consistently from 90% to 70%. And then by the time at the end of the Reagan administration to 28%, is that right? What were the effects? How did those, I guess, bills... You know, let me just take you through Kennedy. He did my commencement address. I graduated from Yale, and he was the commencement speaker at my class's graduation. And he talked about the Laffer curve. He didn't call it the Laffer curve, but he said that cutting tax rates is the best way imaginable to create prosperity and ultimately to increase revenues. The Laffer curve, I didn't invent it. I didn't discuss, I mean, it had been around. It just hadn't been used. 
every time we've cut the highest tax rate in the United States, from Kennedy, it was from 91 to 70%. Reagan, it was from 70 to 28%. Harding and Coolidge, every time we've cut the highest tax rate, tax revenues from the top 1% of income earners have gone way up, not down. They don't shelter their income. They don't cheat on their income. They don't change corporate forms. They don't leave the jurisdictions. They, you know, it really works on the highest income earners because they really respond to incentives. So whenever you want more revenues from the rich, if you need these people talking about wanting to collect more from the rich, lower tax rates on the rich and you'll collect a lot more money. So the key question, of course, the optimal tax rate is somewhere between zero and 100. How does one find out what is the optimal number on the Laffer curve? Well, it depends on how long you're willing to wait. I mean, you know, it takes a long time to build a capital stock and a long time to destroy it. So if you're looking at the very long horizon, you want to have the lowest one because all of the substitution effects take place. You know, uh, and what you really want to do is make sure you maximize the long run effect. And remember, when you're looking at tax revenues, don't just look at the product you're taxing. Look at all the revenues from other products as well. If we lower the capital gains tax rate, because we'll get more investments, more output, there'll be more income as well. You'll get an income tax. There'll be more corporate profits taxes. There'll be more sales taxes. I mean, all of these secondary and tertiary and quaternary revenues will occur. Likewise, when you lower capital gains tax rates, you're going to get less welfare payments because people have jobs. They aren't poor. They, so supplemental security income, food stamps, all of those go down as a result of that because there are not so many people in need. And on and on and on. So when you look at this taxing, it's not some simple little easy concept. Where's the maximum tax rate? It matters how you tax people. It matters how much you tax people. It's how you matters how you spend the money. If you pay people not to work, and tax them if they do work. Don't be surprised if a lot of people don't work. You think you can change the distribution of income with government spending and taxes. People are smarter than government. I think there's been some great examples of just the reducing the tax rate, especially at the high marginal rate and seeing great increases in revenues. Have there been any examples of the opposite? Have there been examples where maybe it went too low in the, in the curve, so to speak? Well, I don't know about going too low or whatever, but I can tell you one clear case of the opposite when we put in the income tax. When it went from zero to 7%, revenues went up. <laughs> okay. <so> the, <laughs> I'm thank you. Yeah, I see the humor in it. But, yeah, sure. but you know what we did in 1913? We put in the income tax. We raised the, we, we instituted the rate, went from zero to 7%. Within four years, it was up to 77%. They found a revenue source and they just went like rats to a, <laughs> and that went overboard. Raised it to 77%. We had all of this terrible economy from 1913 through the war. And then Harding and Coolidge lowered the tax rate from 77% to 24%. We had a period called the Roaring Twenties. Was that boom, the stock market did well. Then we had the huge tariff bill in 1930, a Smoot-Hawley tariff, signed into law by Hoover in May of 1930, crashed. Then we raised tax rates during the Depression from 24% to 91%. Duh, is it any wonder that was the longest, deepest depression in U.S. history? And then you get the recent ones, the same thing, followed W and Obama. Trying to keep it bipartisan here. But by, you know, it's bipartisan ignorance as well as bipartisan success. I mean, Kennedy and Reagan were terrific successes. And uh, Jimmy Carter and Nixon were terrific losers. <laughs> Let's maybe bring it to the present. What do you both think of the current state of where the U.S. economy is headed, current policy is headed, maybe the current tax rate? And we could get into a little bit more about U.S.-China as well. Kathy? 
Yeah, I guess in terms of what's worrying the markets right now, Fed policy has been a worry. So we'd love to hear your thoughts about that, as well as the China trade, China-US trade conflict. And perhaps also, if you have some thoughts, fixed income investors are very worried about corporate debt because because of the leveraging up to buy back shares and and so forth you know sort of shrinking the equity buffer you know in in terms of bond investors protection so maybe you could go yeah. through those i think that as far as the last 2 years are concerned we've had the best set of economic policies and i'm just talking economics that we've had in generations the tax bill that was passed and went into effect january 1st 2018 is spectacular it drops that corporate rate from 35%, which was the highest in the OECD, to 21, which puts us in the middle of the pack. It got rid of a global tax system and made it territorial, which is phenomenal. 100% expensing of capital purchases for five years. I mean, that doesn't change the total amount of depreciation at all, but it changes the internal rate of return, especially in high-tech investments. This is especially a high-tech period. Maybe explain that a bit more. I think there's yeah, nuances. Yeah, high-tech investments, when you, get the, when you get the expensing and stuff, you, you know, if you've got 30 years, you've got to wait to get your capital back. It's really hard to justify a good investment. But if you can expense your expense, then you really go for the high-tech, high-return, bam, stuff right away. And that's exactly what really stimulates the technology. That's why I think a lot of this boom is occurring in this area because people are rewarded for doing it. And, you know, and it's just amazing. I mean, then we lowered the personal income tax rate, the highest from 39.6 to 37. There were some pass-through corporations that got even further cuts uh, down to 28.6. You know, we, we had a couple of other things, the salt limitations and, and the getting rid of the mandate. But that's about the best tax bill I've seen, except maybe the 86 Tax Act. We've had deregulation. We have a new Fed chairman who I think is great. You know, when you lower interest rates, as happened with Bernanke and, and with Janet Yellen, what you really do is you destroy the incentive for people to invest in those markets. Who wants to invest in a 30-year mortgage with a risky borrower at 2%? No one. And so that's why there were no housing starts, why there were no investments for such a long time. But I think we're right on the, I mean, we are in the middle of a real boom because of the tax bill, because of good policy, good regulations. So in this case, turning up interest rate is actually encouraging us. Yeah, it's like any price. A price can be too low. It can be too high. You want it right where markets set it. And, it, you know, when we came into office, the prime was 21.5%. It was way too high. No one wanted to buy a house. They couldn't afford a mortgage. Now it's at 0%. No one wants to lend to a mortgage borrower. You want it right where demand equals supply. And that's what's called market economics. And Powell's doing a great job. And Yellen and Bernanke, in my view, didn't understand economics. Okay. Tax policy we've covered. What about the current trade situation? What's your view on where the U.S. and China sits right now? It's very mixed. I mean, obviously, from this, my standpoint, and I was the first one to go to China in modern times. I went there in 1970 with George Schultz and John Ehrlichman and Air Force Two. I was Schultz's right-hand person at the time. That's pre-Kissinger. That was pre-Kissinger. We did the pre-trip for Kissinger. And that's what we did. We were always talking to him. And, you know, I, I had this hostility towards China, like most Americans did at the time, you know, and I fell in love with China. I just fell in love. And if you come to my office, you can see all my Chinese stuff. I mean, I've got an opium pipe. I've got big food dogs. I mean, I've, I've got terracotta warriors, six of them. What did you see that you loved? Uh, I saw a free enterprise society, like, you know, I thought it was a communist society and it wasn't. It was the free enterprises. I've never seen a group of people 
more free enterprise in my life than the Chinese. I mean, it was just, I thought, amazing to me. I was in Hong Kong, of course. I did one step into the new territories for me. <laughs> I was in communist China for one foot. <laughs> but, you know, when, when I look at China, I mean, from 1970, I guess in China then, 97% of all production went through state-run enterprises. Today, that's down to 3 or 4%. That's called a tax cut. In 1994, they pegged the yuan or the renminbi, if you want to call it, to the U.S. dollar. They outsourced monetary policy to Alan Greenspan. That's sound money. And if you look at that, they opened up their borders to trade, and that's free trade. Free trade in China and the U.S. Without China, there is no Walmart. And without Walmart, there is no middle class or lower class prosperity in America. We desperately need China. And China desperately needs us. From 1970 to the present, China has grown a little bit over 10% per annum real. They've had an increase in their real output per, per adult by 34, 35 fold. We have had an increase in output per adult by two, two and a half fold since then. I mean, huge difference. China is still only about 12.5% of U.S. real GDP per adult. So they're still very poor per person. And so they have a long way to go. And the two countries should be the greatest friends and partners in the world. And if we can only get the politics out of this thing, I see no reason why China and the U.S. shouldn't be the closest allies ever. And do you think, just watching Larry Kudlow, Lighthizer, Navarro, we know they're a lot of differing opinions. My sense is that the tariff increases, recent ones, that's really a negotiating ploy and that they really do, meaning Larry Kudlow, President Trump, really do believe that lower tariffs across the board would be better for both countries. I, I was going to keep out of politics a little bit, but let me get into politics. I talked to the president from time to time. And he called me, this is about a year ago, probably. And he talked to me, he said, you know, Art, I'm a free trader. And I can fully believe that he is a free trader. He said, I run an international business. I have, I've known him for a long time, not well, but I've known him for a long time. He said, you know, when you run an international business, you are a free trader. You get your supplies at the highest quality, lowest cost. You sell your things at the highest margin. You really do arbitrage global markets and you have to be a free trader. And I, I, I shouldn't have done it, but I said also when you've imported two foreign wives, you're probably Ooh. a free trader too. <laughs> I don't know if he laughed or not, but I thought it was funny. But he's, And he said, I am a free trader. But he said, you know, it's very hard to bring these people to the table because Japan is not a free trade nation. China is not a free trade. Europe is not. We're by far the freest trade nation. And their tariffs, their barriers hurt them as well as us. And how do I bring them to the table? And the what he said to me was he said, the only leverage I have is they like their exports to the U.S. So therefore, I threaten tariffs. I put them on to bring them to the table. And I want them to then lower things, just exactly as you said, Kathy. When he left the G7 in Ottawa and went to Singapore to meet with Kim Jong-un, he literally said to the other six, if you guys will agree today to go to zero tariffs and zero protectionist measures, the U.S. will go along and do zeros as well. Right now, let's do it. And they all just looked at him and twiddled their thumbs and he went on. So I think Trump, I believe Trump is doing this to get free trade. You know, I'm not a negotiator personally. I'm a scaredy cat. I give up my, he's a master negotiator and, you know, 
uh, I think he really wants free trade too. And if that occurs, it'd be just spectacular. What, what I find very interesting, and I don't think the press is paying much attention to this, is the income uh, tax rate cuts in China, almost across the board, number one, and the cut in import duties, not across the board, but if you were to average them, it'd be about 20% lower than they were in total before. I mean, I have the feeling that we could be working up to a boom. Me too. Yeah. Me too. I mean, China has been really moving towards free markets since 1970. Before, they were were 100% taxes. It was a horrible. They've been moving consistently in that direction. And I'm very excited. The only thing I, I, I worry about is when you have a president for life who does have total control of the party and the politics, the, the guy can change his mind. And, you know, and the president can change his mind. And that's the only thing that worries me. But I think the world is on a free trade tear. And I think the world is really attractive investment-wise. I mean, I know you do too, yeah, Kathy. absolutely. You and I see the world through very rose-colored glasses. I think they're realistic. Yeah. And I think it's been realistic for a long time. But don't, you know, from time to time, setbacks occur. But I, I'm not, I don't see anything out there that frightens me. You? As you say, if if trade if trade doesn't settle down, and I mean the trade conflict, that that's that's a bit of a you know wrench in the works. Yeah, but, but I don't see it going. The, I don't see it spiraling down to a trade yeah. war. I just you know everyone knows that doesn't work. I, I I agree with that. I agree with that. Do you think you would both love for the U.S. and China to be friends and and to actually help the global economy? It seems like perhaps more so from the Chinese perspective that there is greater ambitions there. The China is in some of the, its strongest position it's ever been. And th- this current Xi Jinping is, is very ambitious in terms of getting, um, restoring China's classical place in his mind uh, in the world. Um, do you see that as an impediment? Or is there, is there a way we can be friends as opposed to be, uh, I guess, com- competing to? Yeah, I don't think I've ever respected anyone who doesn't respect himself or herself. Mm-hmm. And I think Chinese pride is very important for China and self-esteem. And I think the Chinese should be very proud of their history. Although I would disagree with you, they haven't had that pride recently. But if you go back a thousand years, China was really something special. And right now, China has a right to be something special too. And I think there's nothing wrong with national pride, national self-esteem. And I'm sure as hell proud of being an American. And I'm sure it's helped proud that we came here a long, long time ago. Kathy, I know you are. And we all come from Ireland. <laughs> or some of them came from some other places, didn't they, Kathy? <laughs> but I mean, seriously, it's, it's just uh, there's nothing wrong with being proud of yourself, your family, your pride, your kids. And so China, I don't think that's a problem. If it turns into belligerence, if it turns into bullying, then it's a real problem. But, you know, just make sure that that doesn't happen in China or the U.S., all righty. Now, Dr. Laffer, you read a lot in hardcore tech. You're reading biology, you're reading physics. What are you reading right now that's exciting you from a technology perspective that's going to be good for the world for the next five, 10 years? I've been reading a lot on genetics and all the stuff there on horizontal gene transfers. I've been reading on the endosymbiosis, all this stuff on CRISPR, on uh, all that. I mean, it's amazing stuff if you really get into biology that, you know, the the battle between bacteria and and uh, viruses uh, over time and how the two, I mean, they've been battling for 4 billion years and they have developed some amazing weaponry. 
and amazing abilities to circumvent weaponry. And that's where we find some really exciting stuff. I mean, the, the CRISPR stuff. If you really get into that, it's mind-boggling. The stuff you have in ribosomes, if you go on that, and how the ribosomes and, you know, with the RNA that they have there and all the proteins and stuff there. I mean, the way they developed antibiotics, you know, we could develop antibiotics right now. You, Everyone talks about and gets all scared about the uh, some of these uh, bacteria-developing antibacteriology things fighting it, you know, and we, we've got the ability to go right in there. I mean, the way viruses have been able to infiltrate and get into cells, and then the way the bacteria have fought to keep them from doing that, and what happens when they break in, what they do, they slice them up, and all of that stuff, we're just discovering it now. And it's like opening up the universe. It's like seeing our first star. You know, evolution and biology are amazing creators, and we're just starting to break into that. And if you look at some of the recent Nobels in, in biology, it's just, whew, wow. When, when I went to visit Art in Tennessee to talk about ARC, Art told me a story about how, you know, cancer is today like wild dogs were, you know, thousands of years ago. So Untamed, undomesticated. Und, like man's worst enemy, Right. And then we domesticated them and they became man's best friend. And Art was talking about cancer in the same way that, okay, worst enemy, you know, fear of God when anybody, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, whenever anybody had cancer, we are taming it now, we think. But, you know, this idea that, you know, Cancer is the replication of cells, and that sounds like it's life-giving. Could we tame it so it actually is life-giving? And I walked out of that and said, I got to do this. <laughs> but it's so true. I mean, necrosis, I mean, cancer cells have found, have been able to make themselves eternal. They've gotten a necrotic stuff that's gone. I mean, they've done all these things all in response to us attacking them and changing them, morphing and all that changes. And when you realize how many cells there are in a body, I mean, if you do that and you look at the Petri dishes there and they put something in and they kills them all except two live and then a week later, the Petri dish is full of again, all with the antibiotics, the anti-antibiotics there. It's, it's, you know, it's amazing. Cancer is that. Cancer is going to be our biggest ally ever. They have discovered incredible things cancer cells have. I have never heard a pro-cancer narrative this is the first time. Oh, but it's a pro-wolf narrative. Of course. In the ancient days, and it's very true. And it's, you know, if you look at cells, I mean, gosh, I mean, prokaryotes and eukaryotes and all of the, uh, you know, archaea. Archaea, we didn't even know there was archaea until the 1980s. A whole complete form of life that had evolved from the very beginning. We didn't even know it. These are the extremophiles. Uh, and what we're discovering in all this stuff is all these things, and we're going to start using it to our advantage. And, you know, all this stuff with the ribosomes, I really want you to, because ribosomes are very big, complex uh, cell structure that do the, create the proteins through the RNA. And, you know, what we've been able to do is get rid of the cell attachments for some of the bacteria to, to really do it. And that's what our antibiotics have been. Now, I have no idea how they discovered that these things really got rid of the attackers to the ribosomes, but they did. 
But those are just little lucky random one-offs. I mean, all of your antibiotics. But now that we can get the ribosome, which is very recent, last five years, mm -hmm. the three of them got the Nobel Prize, that lady from Israel, the, the Indian guy and the other one. You know, the, the, it's amazing. Now we can go into the ribosomes there and now create antibiotics easily. But that's what we need to do. And Kathy's going to find that company. If you go through their work and who funded them and all that, Kathy finds that stuff. This little bitty company called Illumina. <laughs> and I have to give a lot of credit to Manisha Sammy. She's doing a lot of work on RNAi, and it's interesting. Just to touch on one topic, a company named Moderna came came public, and it was at thirty times sales. We have a stock. Same RNAi platform type company in our portfolio, Arcturus, two time sales. We're seeing this time and time again. Private markets way overvalued, public markets way undervalued, we believe. Yeah, it's amazing. And what Kathy says in these things, and you just, you do it. I mean, Tesla, for example, she got me the test long ago, and, and she said, it's not a car company, this is a battery company. Now it's a software. I mean, it's just amazing how she sees clearly what others can only discern in a fog. And great team, the, great, a great team. No, I, and I'm not diminishing your team. <laughs> yeah, but you put the team together. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and, and, no, and, they, and you've been able to see in them what you know what other people haven't seen in them as the team. And you guys have created yeah phenomena. And I'm so so honored to be part of this team. We're blessed. Well. Thank awesome. you, Art. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results.